Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27 with Pastor John King. So this week we're going to continue in the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. So as you're turning there to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27, quick highlight from last week. Uh, we, we began to see Jesus responding to a stream of questions. So this, what happened last week is the same day of the week we will be in today. And Jesus is teaching. And, uh, you know, he's, we've seen where he's arrived at Jerusalem for the, his final Passover feast. Uh, he became the center of attention among the people. And he was causing the Jewish people and the Romans quite a bit of uh, grief, if you will. Because he was teaching and healing people each day on the temple complex. Remember that big temple complex, you know, can hold thousands of people. I heard somebody say he was up there once uh, recently in modern times with 60,000 people on top of the temple mount. It's 30 acres uh, of area. And Jesus would typically have been under one of the colonnades in the shade teaching. And he spent a lot of time doing that. And so while he's teaching, you had these folks coming up. And, uh, you know, first last week we saw the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders uh, they were going to approach him, and, and they, they were asking him about the source of his authority. You know, how do, where do you come from? Where do you get off Jesus telling us about God and acting the way you are? How is it that you're allowed to enter our city in a triumphal entry? How is it that you're able to heal the blind and the lame? Who gave you the authority to do that? Um, you know, Jesus' response to their question demanded that they reciprocate. You remember the famous question. He says, well, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Is the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And, you know, he had them kind of stuck in a dilemma. We already learned from their response that they were simply being hypocritical. They already knew that Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah. And for the past three years, he had all these miracles that were taking place. He was uh, having power over death and sickness and disease, creation and demons, over and over again. So they knew it, he knew it, and they were just messing with him, really. So they were caught in a political dilemma, and they didn't know how quite to answer. So they decided, well, we're just not going to answer. <laughs> We don't want to get ourselves in trouble with the people because they knew how popular Jesus was. But since Jesus had a captive audience, he began to teach them the parable of the vineyard and the vine dressers. It was a parable of the coming judgment that would happen as a result of their rejection and their murder of their Messiah. God will allow their city to be destroyed, we've been saying, and their nation would be scattered. Setting the nation aside for a time in order that the Christian church would be given the responsibility of delivering the gospel message to the far, far, farthest reaches of the earth. In judgment of Israel, God's patience would run dry and they would stumble once again over Jesus. The stone who they would reject, God would resurrect to be the cornerstone to build his church. Today we will continue to observe how Jesus responds to two questions that are you know even common in our day or at least one of them is common issues that nearly everyone is familiar with in any event first of all he's going to have a question over taxes and then he's also going to ask um is this kind of an absurd question we're going to meet these sadducees today and they're going to ask a very absurd question 
about bodily resurrection and the implications concerning marriage in heaven. So that's going to, what we're going to learn today. Again, we'll be in uh, verse 13. We'll start there. Let's read through that quickly, and then we'll pray and get started. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image, is on, or whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, this is why they're sad, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, neither they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the, not, excuse me, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Heavenly Father, once again, we don't want to be in that place of being greatly mistaken about you. We want to know your word and we want to know you personally, Lord God. We want to know your will for our lives. And so, Lord, we've gathered today once again for your word. May it come pure in, your, in our hearts, Lord God. Let our minds take it in. Let us be open to what you have to say for us, Lord. Let us put aside all of our distractions from the outside uh, world, which is, which is surely waiting for us. We've entered this place to gather in your name, and we've been blessed to be a group, to be a, a church on this Sunday. So, Lord, we ask that you would make this time be useful for our walk with you, that it would draw us closer to you and deeper in our, in our understanding of you. And so go before us now. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So first of all, we start right away with the question of government. The question of government has been a lot on our minds lately. Uh, it's been a lot on the church lately. We've been hearing all kinds of stuff about the church and government with this recent shutdowns. And, and uh, we, we see and we notice in some areas of our country an incredible amount of what seems to be government overreach 
And so the question is back in the forefront, at least for Christians, you know, about this essential and is church essential and everything else. And you, us, though, I, I got to say here in North Carolina, I've said it before, we've been very blessed because our governor chose not to push against our First Amendment rights. But it hasn't been that way in all areas of our country. So the question of government and state and separation of church and state, that's always, you know, seems to be a conversation that's being had or held in our nation. And it has been for a long time, and it's a good conversation to have. But we see here, uh, they come to him, these Pharisees and these Herodians in verse 13. But their intention is not to become educated. You notice that uh, Mark says right away, their intention was to catch him in his words. Um, Luke really provides a lot of insight. In, in a parallel passage in Luke 2.20, this is what they did. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So there you have it all laid out. There's their agenda being revealed to us and what Jesus already knows, uh, and they think they're being clever. But it says, then they sent him. Who are, who are they? Who sent, who, who's they and who'd they send? Well, they are the people that we talked about last week. These were the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. You know, these were the big, the big kahunas, the big cheeses in the, in, the, in the temple. And they were very, remember last week, they were extremely angry. They sought to lay hands on Jesus after he gave that parable predicting rightly their demise. And so they're like, okay. And they sent them these Pharisees and Herodians. Well, who are these Pharisees? Who are Pharisees? Again, a little bit of review for us. The Pharisees are an Old, tech, Old Testament sect of Judaism that began after the Babylonian exile. After they'd returned from, from the exile, and they sought distinction and praise by their outward religious observances. They were proud of their good works. They believed in a coming Messiah, the existence of angels, both good and bad, and the bodily resurrection of the dead for final judgment. So those were the Pharisees. And then you had this other group. And we're going to see an unlikely alliance because these are the Herodians. Now the Herodians were the political arm. These were the partisan supporters of the Jewish citizens. And they worked, they had government jobs, a lot of them, if they, did, if they weren't family members. They worked for the government. And what government I talk, am I talking about? Not necessarily directly for the Roman government, for, but for Herod, Herod's dynasty. These were kings and rulers appointed by the Roman emperors and given political control over different sections of Israel for a, a period of about 100 years. Famous names like Herod the Great, who at the end of his life called for the death of all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem at the arrival, the first advent of Jesus. He also, Herod the Great, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And then his, his son Herod Antipas that led, had John the Baptist imprisoned and, bat, and, uh, and beheaded. His grandson and great-grandson Agrippa II and Agrippa one are also mentioned in the New Testament. They're not a nice family, and they're not a nice legacy. They don't have a very nice memory in the minds of anybody. And neither were their political supporters, these Herodians. This is the second mention we've had of the Herodians in Mark. We saw it in chapter 3. Both times the Herodians had this strange alliance 
with the Pharisees, because normally they would never, ever, it would be like oil and water, they would never uh, join together. But notice that the text tells us that they came to catch him in his words. This, is, this, this Greek word means to take him by hunting, to ensnare or to entrap him. Not a nice group. So we said, why, normally these two groups would be at total odds, so why were they willing to work together? Well, several reasons if you're taking notes. One is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition will always lead to compromise. And political drama. We see it played out all the time. They were also fearful of Jesus taking away their position and influence along with their wealth and security. You know, they wanted to hold on to the, what they had. And they didn't want any change. You know, people were super resistant to change. And Jesus was a radical change. If, you, if you've been born again, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, chances are, depending on how old you are, it could be a very radical change. Especially if you lived a life of sin and you came to know the Lord as an adult. But nonetheless, no matter what, you come to the Lord, it is a radical change. And these folks didn't want to change. These religionist Pharisees, they put people's needs behind their customs, their traditions. You know, we, sh we should be outside today because we said so, right? Uh, ignoring your needs, that it was going to be very warm and hot and muggy and humid. Because that's the religious thing to do. We want to be out there. I mean, you know, sort of a weird example that just came to me. Now it's gone. The, uh, the politically motivated Herodians had put government ahead of the people's needs. They were supportive of Rome and feared Jesus would liberate the people which would harm their power and influence. And so these two opposing groups had a common enemy in Jesus. And that's what brought them together. You know, it's been said that politics makes strange bedfellows. And apparently so does false religion, wrote one writer. These two groups were at opposite ends of the spectrum. In today's language, you might say that the Pharisees were kind of like far-right conservatives who believed that religion should be the controlling force in all things Israel. In other words, like a state religion. The Herodians were the far-left liberals. They tolerated religion, but they were far more pro-Rome, and they were intensely political. Any public opposition to Rome would cause them, the Herodians, to sound the alarm with the officials. So the, the Pharisees were really the smart ones because they knew that these Herodians would really squawk if Jesus dared say something against Caesar. They had him. They thought they had him. So the stage of public opinion has been set up to react to an inflammatory question. How many times have you seen that play out in our society? where the stage of public opinion is set up to react to an inflammatory question. It doesn't have to be on TV or the news. It can be right there on Facebook, right? Somebody puts, posts some inflammatory thing, and boom, and it could be on Twitter, it could be on Instagram. The way our society works now, it seems, as information comes out and, and you know, drama happens, uh, you know, in these little ones and zeros of the, the, uh, the uh, cyber world, is you get a bunch of action going on in Twitter and Instagram, and by sooner or later, you know, uh, 
People start to pick up on it. The politicians start to pick up on it. Other people do. And it just kind of blows up. And it, you just notice it just kind of goes crazy, which is why I don't, I don't have Facebook on uh, except once a week to check our page. It gets annoying. But what they do is they first they come in and they want to disarm him. Look at verse 14. They want to disarm him with flattery. They're going to take him. And they say, they start out, teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men. Teacher. Now Jesus was known by every single person of being a matchless teacher. Even the rabbis couldn't argue with the fact of Jesus, how he, how he spoke. Supernatural. This is God incarnate speaking so that you can understand. If he's not speaking in parables, if he's declaring truth so that you can understand and nobody could explain the scriptures better than him. The titles teacher, master, and rabbi all indicate the most prominent function of his active ministry. Even at the age of 12 years, he revealed his wisdom and affinity in the midst of the rabbis or Jewish teachers of the law in the temple. In the power of the Spirit, he taught so that all recognized his authority. He explained to the disciples in private and he taught the people in public. His principles and methods of teaching constitute the standard by which all true education is measured. It, he, he set the standard for it. He's the ideal toward which all subsequent teachers have toiled with only partial success. I mean, think about it. If God in the flesh is teaching, is he going to be good at it? Is he going to be perfect at it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just good, but perfect. And so they come to him and they're laying it on. We say, hey, we know that you're true and you care about no one, meaning you don't have, you're not worried about people's opinions. You only declare the truth. You don't regard the person of men. You're not hung up on pleasing people. In other words, we know you will speak truthfully because you're not worried about what others will think. And he's, they say, conclude in their, in their buttering up of Jesus, they say, but teach the way of God in truth. I mean, they were laying it on thick at this point. They were trying to be deceptive with their flattering words, but notice this. Every single thing they said about him at that point was true. Even though they didn't believe their own words. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It's kind of sick, isn't it? They didn't even believe their own words that he was a master teacher, that he was true and truthful, that he was a teacher from God. That he did teach the way of God, how a man was to live and to behave if he wished to please God. And he did not care what men said about him. He wasn't influenced and he didn't show partiality or favoritism. You know, if they believed all that they said about him, they would be his allies and his disciples, instead of being his enemies who sought his destruction. So they were trying to appear sensitive. They want to look good in front of the people. And they wanted to somehow prove that they were the ones with the truth. John 14, 6 says this, Jesus saying to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so they've approached him, and now they, they, they spring the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Now, know ahead of time, a yes answer would discredit Jesus with the people because they didn't like paying taxes. They opposed having to pay taxes to a foreign government that, you know, took their land, a foreign conqueror, Rome. They didn't like taxation without representation in a sense. They had no voice. But a no answer would cause him to be arrested by the Roman authorities for opposing the law and threatening a revolt. So they think they have him in a catch-22. But notice what, they, what happens in verse 15. They say again, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, See, Jesus perceived their wickedness, according to Matthew. He already knew what they were going to do and how they were coming at him. This word hypocrisy, again, it's, you know what it means. It's to simulate. It's a simulation. It's not the real thing. What you're presenting is not real. It's to give a false appearance of who you really are. And we ought to know by now, all of us, that no matter how we look to others and what kind of face we put out publicly, God sees us, he looks straight to the heart, and he knows all of our thoughts and intentions. So he says, knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why do you test me? Why do you have to make a trial? Why do you have to put me on trial and try to prove me wrong? Why do you want to tempt me, in other words? Matthew 4, 7. Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So he says, you hypocrites. Jesus knows the people better than anyone. He proved them right about his character when they said, we know that you are true and you care about no one. And he proved them right, right there. And he wasn't going to mince words. He wasn't afraid to tell them the truth. So he was telling them to their faces. He saw right through their thin disguise. So he says, very simple. I mean, just the, the simplicity is like a, like a dad, you know, settling an argument. Uh, bring me a denarius that I may see it. You know, they, they had planned out this very crafty attempt, and there'd be more questions to come at him. But Jesus, he proceeded to settle the matter right there, verse 16. So they brought it, and they said to him, he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? This, this is, again, another question for the questioners and their answer also answers their question. Very simple. They said to him, Caesar's. And so you had these coins. You may have seen pictures of them. Uh, they were minted coins. And they would have the, the picture or the headshot, if you will, the, the profile of the emperor on one side. And on the other side, in this case, during Jesus' time, a Roman coin would have read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Because the Romans looked to their emperors as though they came from God, if you will. They had a lot of Greek influence in their philosophy. And so Jesus says in verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You've all heard that. You could, anybody could come up here and, and teach this. To render means to pay what is due as a debt. In other words, a tribute. It's what we call Taxes. I know you didn't want to say taxes. It's what we call taxes. And then he says, so render to Caesar, pay your taxes to the government, 
and give God the things that are God's. Well, what is, what is God's? All of it. Our, our worship, our obedience, our sacrificial service. You know, the fact that we, you know, we took the time to get up and get dressed this morning and come worship our God together in obedience to His Word. And some of you here serving Him sacrificially. And all of you here encouraging each other. And so he said that, you know, render, give Caesar his, take care of the government, take care of God. And what they do? They all marveled. They're like, we couldn't trick this guy. And they left him and they went their way. They're like, whoops, let's try again. <laughs> you know, I could imagine what they were muttering to themselves as they walked away. Luke 20, 26, it says, but they could not catch him in his words and in the presence of the people. Remember, that was their goal. And so they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So you might say, well, what, what about our time? You know, we live in a, in a country that was based on Christian values. It's foundational. And I think when we, when we see the government and we sense government oppression or opposition to a country that was founded on that very same God's principles, and it's in all the writings on the buildings and federal buildings and, and uh, quotations from Moses and everything else in our history, it probably, I think it, that's why it makes it a little bit more difficult for us. The the, the Jews didn't like the Romans there in their land and controlling them and, and crushing them. But they, I don't think they ever expected Rome to maybe be religious in that sense. Well, we're, in our country, we're in a strange place. Because our laws and our foundation, our constitution is all based on biblical principles. And we see them crumbling. So it is a difficult question about what about the government. But the principles that Jesus gave to the Jews then and to the church, early church, still apply. They don't change because God never changes. God doesn't say, and if your government is such and such a way that you will do these things and render to them. So we still have an obligation to both, even though the specific details surrounding this historical context are different. The biblical principles are the same. Paul wrote in Romans 13 that everyone is subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because ultimately a government's authority comes from and is established by God for the good of, of society. So we are all to pay our taxes and we are all to obey the law. As Christians, we are also to pray for those in positions of authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I exert, exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the givings of thanks be made for all men, for kings and, who are, uh, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. More importantly, though, than rendering to Caesar... Jesus instructs us to render to God all things that are His. John 5.23 That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. All through the Bible we are instructed to honor God, to obey Him and to serve Him. 
We are to worship Him in spirit and truth. We are to worship Him with our hands and feet, with our bodies. We worship Him with our tithes and our offerings. We recognize that our life here is only temporary. This is not our final home. All people owe obedience to, to uh, owe God the obedience to the greatest commandment in His law. Mark 12:30 says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength." So finally, if we're ever faced with having to choose between obeying God and obeying government, whether we have a free choice or not, we are always to obey God first. You may recall from Acts 5, verses 27 and 29. Here the government, the Jewish leaders, had put a restriction on the Christians. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? In other words, you are not to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people out on the street or wherever you're worship, worship, um, gathering. And he says, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. In communist China, where the church may be as large as 100 million people, they're not allowed, or if they do go to church, it's a state-sponsored thing. But the evangelical church in China, they're not allowed to meet with more than 50 people if they're allowed to meet at all. And they risk their life to bring the gospel. Despite the fact that somebody could bust down the doors and drag them off to prison and arrest their pastor and do all kinds of terrible things. So we're not to shy away from teaching the, our, our secular society, showing our secular society who Jesus is. But we do it in a way that honors God and, and, you know, there's, again, it's difficult because we can't, almost can't believe we're having to say this in our country. When we look at what's happening to our school systems. Because life is moving so fast. Faster than ever. And things are changing so quickly. So we need to be paying attention, right? We need to be circumspect about everything that's going on. And I'm not talking about things that I've done, waste my time and, you know, different things that don't do anything. I'm talking about knowing where you're at with the Lord, being concerned and genuinely repentant before the Lord about your sin, not wanting to play around with that and wanting to live a life that brings honor to God and let it be known and let it be shown. Next, the question of marriage. Mark 12, 18 to 23, it says here, Again, now he's, he's sent those guys away. He's sent the Pharisees and the Herodians away. He's, he's settled the issue. And now he come, here comes another group. Verse 18, And the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. <laughs> who are these guys? This is the only place in Mark's Gospel that mentions this opposition group. They were known for their wealth, their dislike of common people, and opposition to the Pharisees. And they, their public statement when it comes to religious matters is they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, what do they believe? Well, th this group only believed in the first five books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the existence of the soul. They didn't believe in resurrection. 
They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't even believe in a final judgment. Doesn't that sound familiar? Now, in today's language, this group would be sort of an odd mix of a postmodern humanist, you know, atheistic view, with a little bit of spiritual religion mixed in. No belief in anything really spiritual or supernatural. People who are humanist in their belief system don't believe in anything supernatural whatsoever. The, the world that you have right now is all you're going to get. In their minds, the teachings of, of Jesus were the teachings of an unthinking and an illogical man. And that's what you're going to be called when, they, when people challenge you on what you believe in the Bible. They're going to, they're, you're going to be considered to be unthinking, not following the science. They, lack, uh, they would say you lack philosophical analysis and natural proof of what you believe. Their liberal position caused them to feel threatened to oppose Jesus. Again, Jesus is speaking the truth, and he's telling them about, you know, he's been speaking about all kinds of things, um, but he's, he's the, here he is, uh, God incarnate, declaring himself to be the Messiah, which would be supernatural in itself. And he's done a lot of supernatural things. Many people had heard from just a couple days ago when he raised Lazarus from the dead, because there were so many eyewitnesses. And so these Sadducees, they were afraid. You know, they were, you know, we hear the joke, they're sad, you see. They were losing their grip on the people. Their position and wealth was being jeopardized. They were compelled to attack and discredit him before the people. So they came to him and they asked him, saying, kind of like the previous group, these Pharisees and Herodians, these Sadducees, Sadducees presented him with a bizarre scenario. Really strange. You, we read it ourselves. You know, uh, a woman married seven times, never have kids. It's just a bizarre scenario. That never happened, really. I mean, who's ever heard of that? And they wanted to make Jesus look foolish to the people. So they said, you know, again, the story begins, teacher Moses wrote for us. Now, they were experts in the Pentateuch, and so they quoted Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It says, if a man's brother dies and leave his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. David Guzik wrote this, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 established something that came to be called the Leverite marriage. From the Latin word lever meaning brother-in-law. Essentially, the practice made sure that if a married man died childless, his brother had to take the widow as a wife so a son and heir could be provided for the deceased man. And his family name and inheritance would not perish. That was the original intent. And so now they begin to tell this very bizarre story where, you know, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he died and he left no offspring and then they go to the second. You know, by the time you get to the second or third, you're starting to wonder about this lady. Maybe, I mean, everybody that marries her dies. Maybe this shouldn't happen. Maybe, maybe you should think twice about it, brothers. Maybe you should ask the Lord, hey, maybe go to your, uh, you know, your, your officials and say, could we, could we have an exemption for this? And so, but really what they're doing is they're mocking Jesus. They're mocking this whole thought about resurrection. Now, resurrection is key to the fact, if you're a Christian and you don't believe in resurrection, why are you here? <laughs> uh, because it's, it's key 
to our, our life in Christ. The fact that he died, he rose again, and that we will rise again with him. And so they ask this crazy question. And then, therefore, in the resurrection. See, they say, oh, in the this is something they don't even believe. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Now, we do need to understand something about the time prior to Jesus. Now, this is prior to Jesus' obviously his, his death and burial and resurrection. And so we do need to recognize to some degree that the Old Testament and the Pharisees and those who did believe in resurrection, um, they, they had a clear teaching in the Old Testament, but it wasn't nearly as defined and explained as it was to us, is to us in the New Testament. I mean, we, if you get into the topic of resurrection and you look to the Bible and you see it is everywhere in the New Testament. So they, you know, they thought they were being clever. They knew that maybe the Pharisees, you know, some of them may have been sort of shaky on the subject, if you will. They definitely didn't believe it. But they were trying to trick, they were trying to take this supernatural thing that God promises us, that Jesus affirms, and they were trying to make it seem silly or impossible. And they're trying to trap him into an impossible situation. But we see in verse 24, Jesus' reply. You know, they're still going to be sad when they hear this reply. They're not going to be happy, happy seas. They're going to be still be sad seas, sad you seas. And he says to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now when he says, are you there, not therefore mistaken, the word mistaken means, are you not, have you not been led astray into error and sin. It's not like, hey, now do you think you might have made a mistake there? No, it's basically declaring, you have been led astray. And he declares that right there. Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, the mistake you have making is because you do not know. First of all, two things. You don't know the scriptures. By limiting their scripture sources to Moses' writings, they missed the clear teaching in the Old Testament about a future bodily resurrection. We'll have three examples. Job 19, 25, and 27. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Then Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Everybody will be resurrected. It's where you end up, is the question. Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. So they had plenty of uh, reasons. They may not have, have as much emphasis on the resurrection because it wasn't clearly uh, fully understood. Uh, for example, the Pharisees believed that in the resurrection that if you had an affliction or a, you know, a disease or you, you had something in your physical person, you would take that into the afterlife. 
whatever affliction or disease you had, uh, physical deformity, for instance, that would go into heaven with you. That's a false belief that the Pharisees tended to believe. Jesus says, you know, we will be risen, we will have new bodies, everything will be made new. Hallelujah. (laughs) But, folks, the key thing here is they don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's a key thing for us to understand. Three reasons why people don't know the Scriptures. Very simple. A person doesn't know the Scriptures because they haven't really studied the Scriptures. Uh, we typically in America, how many Bibles do we... T- I mean, I don't even know what, this, what the statistic might be. How many Bibles are in a typical American home where they claim to be a Christian family? There's no excuse for not reading the Scriptures, but they haven't really studied. So you don't know the Scriptures because you don't study the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures because a person may not believe the Scriptures. They reject the Scripture as God's Word. That's the place where the church has gone many times in denominations where they've started to say, well, this Word is not necessarily true in all aspects. It's called progressive Christianity. And it's one step away from destruction. Every denomination that has chosen to go that way and not take the Bible literally, their numbers have plummeted over the, century, over the decades. So all your mainline denominations, every year you read more and more are leaving. Why? Because they've taken the truth of the Word and the Spirit of God out of their religion. They've become a religion. And people don't want that. They don't need that. That's nothing, that does nothing for a person. And so these mainline denominations have tumbled and are continuing to do so because progressive Christianity is one step away from atheism. So they don't take the scriptures literally. That's why you don't know the scriptures. You won't take it. You, you tend to spiritualize and you tend to allegorize a lot of things more and more. If they understood the power of God they would have realized that he can and he does raise people from the dead. As we said earlier, there were eyewitnesses, several, that he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's three reasons why a person may not know the Scriptures, not having studied, not believing, or not taking them literally. And there are also three reasons why a person does not know the power of God. One reason is because a person is simply ignorant of God. They know nothing about God. And seldom, if ever, give any thought about God or His power. Another reason that a person doesn't know the power of God is because they don't believe in God nor nor His power. He prefers to acknowledge God's eternal power and Godhead seen in creation, and they go about creating gods of their own. You look, I mean, how many times can you sit uh, and just look at the, the, the splendor of his creation? Uh, aside from the bugs and the mugginess, but the splendor of God's creation. I mean, it never ends. Every morning is a new, you know, when the sun comes up, it's a new revelation of God. But instead of, uh, you know, worshiping God, they create gods of their own. First Corinthians 15, 35 and 30. Age says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body 
as he pleases into each seat of his own body. That passage I just read was Paul kind of explaining the, the resurrection. And thirdly, a person believes, not knowing the power of God, but they believe, but their belief in God and his power is weak, and that can happen to all of us. Sometimes our faith can become weak, and so we can stumble in that area. And so we need to ask, Lord, Lord, will you show me your power? Will you show me your, your work I, I desire? I, you know, help me with my unbelief, as the man would tell Jesus. So a person doesn't know the scriptures because they haven't studied, they do not believe, or they don't take them literally. A person doesn't know the power of God because they're ignorant, or they don't believe in God, or their belief in, in God and his power has become weakened through influences or whatever they've allowed to come into their life. So what, if, you, if, you know, if you haven't seen anything from me on this, if you're not receiving anything else from this message, brothers and sisters, two things will keep you from wandering. They are knowing the scriptures and trusting the power of God. Knowing the scriptures and trusting the power of God. Now verse 25, quickly, Jesus goes and he says, for when they raise, rise from the dead, okay, now he's basically saying, look, resurrection is real, so for when they do rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So when he says, for when they rise from the dead, verse 25, this is, uh, this is used to say of things which, when a person uses that Greek phrase, they're, they're basically assuming that this will really occur. So when God says it, it's going to really occur. See, the reason the Sadducees were so sad is because they had absolutely nothing to look forward to. Nothing. And they couldn't conceive of a better place. When you think this is all there is and you can't conceive of a better place, it's no wonder that you walk around you know, in a helpless state. And he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, this is a tough passage. <laughs> you know, you might say, but I want to be married to you in heaven. <laughs> I don't ever want to be apart from you. But we need to remember, that, and that's good. If, 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 you're, if you say that to your spouse, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking that away. But we need to remember that future life and relationships will exceed earthly relationships. Even the bond of marital relationships. The strong union and bond of marriage will not be less, but it will be greater and stronger. Because, he says, but are like the angels in heaven. So you're trading, you know, this world, this, this worldly body, you know, even if it's a beautiful marriage, you know, made in heaven, if you will, it's not going to be any comparison to what it's going to be like in heaven. And he says, he says, but it's going to be like the angels in heaven. So we need to understand about this. First, we need to understand two things. Future life and relationships will be equal to that experienced by the angels and God. Our future life in heaven will be equal to the angels and God. This means... At least two things. One, heavenly life and relationships will be perfected. 
Our relationships as they are known on earth will cease to be in heaven. They will be changed in that they will be perfected. Selfishness and sin will not affect our love and our lives. Our love will be perfected. Therefore, we will love everyone perfectly. A wife on this earth will not be loved as she was loved on the earth, imperfectly. She will be loved more, loved perfectly. Everyone will love everyone else perfectly. I mean, it's, it's got to be heaven because we know it's not like that here on earth. God will change all relationships into perfection even as the relationships between angels and God are perfected. You know, the angels were only judged once for their sin, right? Once and they were cast out of heaven. The angels are no longer under judgment. They're not being evaluated. It was taken care of. So now the relationship between the heavenly angels and God right now, it's perfect. And that's what we have to look forward to. The second thing is heavenly life and relationships will be eternal. There will be no ending of relationships and the pain associated with that. A man and wife will always have one, the other to love. One will not cease to be and dying and the other, as is the case now. Everyone always will have everyone else to love. God will change the brief time that we now have with each other into an internal, eternal relationship. We will enjoy the presence of each other eternally, even as the relationship between angels and God is enjoyed eternally. So future life and relationships will be equal to that experienced by the angels and God right now. Finally, in verse 26, Jesus says, But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read the book of Moses? Which, of course, they had. They were experts, supposedly, of the Old Testament, of the first five books. And he reminds them of the burning bush passage. He re he's referring to Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6, where Moses was uh, approached by God in a burning bush. And he said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what, God, what Jesus is saying is, I am is not I was, you know, as something in past. He's, he's a living God. God's relationships are active relationships. They're not inactive. It's not like a past relationship you've had. No, you have a relationship with God and it's active. His relationships with his subjects are continuous. And they are maintained because God is eternal. And he maintains eternal active relationships. Another thing we learn is that God's relationships are good and rewarding. One writer said this, the patriarchs of old were promised rewards. They were promised personal rewards. You see it all through the Bible, and the Old Testament. There, is, there has to be a resurrection if our relationship was, with God is good and rewarding. I mean, there just has to be. To die and to be left dead as a decayed corpse is not good or rewarding. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have a good and rewarding relationship with God. They are alive, more alive than while they were on earth, and they are perfected and eternal. They are with God himself, and, sh and so shall we be. The resurrection is a fact. Verse 27, Jesus says, 
He is not, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then he says, he closes where he says, you are therefore greatly mistaken. Again, God is not the God of dead and decayed corpses. He says, therefore, you're greatly mistaken. He says, you guys are so far off the mark, and you think you're so smart. You're missing the entire meaning of the words that you even know. You don't even get it. In fact, if you look at the parallel passages of this closing, this passage here in Luke 20, verse 39 and 40, after he said that, said some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. And after that, they dared not question him anymore. Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. it says, When the multitudes, when the people heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So once again, Jesus has been taking the hits from these folks, and next week we'll talk about some more questions that are coming his way. This is his last day, his last day of real public ministry where he won't be being beaten and taken away to die on the cross. Our Lord Jesus is always courageous. He goes before us. And he understands what it means to speak truth in spirit and truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. Lord, we would ask that we would sit with you, maybe spend some time, and really probe a few questions, Lord. Do I know the Scriptures? Do I spend more time doing other things than spending time with you and your Word? Have I believed lies about you, things that aren't true? Lord, would you reveal that through us, through your Word, through the power of your Holy Spirit? And Lord, do I know the power of God? Do I really know that your power is real and true or have I wavered? Am I weak in my faith today and I need some strengthening? Lord, I just pray that each of us, knowing you, those of us who walk with you, would ask those important questions. And Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who have not understood the power of your word and the power of your wonderful works that changes hearts and minds of people. Lord, I pray and I ask that you would put it on those maybe watching online from, a, from afar that would hear this message, that they would seek you first. Ask the question, God, are you real? Will you reveal yourself to me? How do I come into your presence? If you're asking those kind of questions, then you can ask God those questions because he hears you. And he will respond if you're willing and your heart is genuinely seeking him. Father, we thank you once again that you've taken us to this place, that you've taught us your word. Go before us now as we enjoy our time of fellowship together this afternoon. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people say. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. 
join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.